Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. All right, Glenn. Uh, dad joke for the day, first one of the new year. Uh, so oh, yeah. I, I learned something uh, recently. Um, I learned uh, back, back in ancient Roman times, they had four different types of poisons, right? They had um, poison eye, poison ii, and poison iii. And they all killed people like instantly on the spot. Like as soon as you touched it, you died. The fourth poison, though, just kind of made you itchy. It was um, poison IV. <laughs> okay. All right. I could see where that one was going. I, I like it. It's cute. Okay. Uh, it's cute. It's cute. <laughs> saw that one coming in. All right. I'll, I'll give you one here that's uh, very much a Stephen Wright kind of joke. Oh, I, I can hear Stephen Wright's voice doing this one. So. I gave my wife an apple, but she said she prefers pears. So I gave her another apple. Yep. Yep. I, I <laughs> the best kind of joke, the one that you kind of see right before it hits. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Yes. And I could absolutely hear Stephen Wright telling that joke too. Uh, all right. Well, uh, a big thank you to our newest patron of 2022. Uh, thank you to Ryan uh, for joining our W podcast, uh, Patreon group. And you can also go that to patreon.com slash W podcast. If you also want to throw a couple bucks our way every month, uh, to help, uh, with the equipment and hosting and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so thank you, Ryan. All right, Glenn. Uh, so first time talking really since, uh, since the holidays, hope you had a good Christmas and new year's. I did. I did. And happy new year's to you. Uh, did you make any, New Year's resolutions? Well, I, really, it's, it's you know, eating better, exercise. Mm, okay. All right. Very good. I'd like that. And, and for yeah, you? I usually make a, well, I usually make a physical resolution, a mental resolution, a spiritual resolution, and usually a work resolution, professional resolution. But this year, I'm going to actually make a couple of different professional resolutions. And I thought one you might be interested in because it sort of relates to some of the topics that we've been discussing recently. Okay, do tell. Um, yeah, sure. So the the, uh, the one that I went, yeah, I'm um I'm I'm going to do this. So my professional resolution this year is to start saying no to invitations to committees, specifically committees that work on standards develop standards, write standards until there is an enforcement mechanism. I get Mm. these invites all the time to sit on these various committees. And I think about all the work we did on SwigFast and all the standards that we developed. And look at all the great work coming out of OSAC and the work coming out of ASB. I mean, let's give credit where credit's due. I mean, all of these people volunteer their time to develop these standards. And... I think I'm at a frustrated point in my life where these standards come out and there's all this argument about these standards. And Eric, you've been through this process. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You're in this room. You're arguing for days and days and days. Some people are saying if we if you make it too high, no one will be able to meet it. Uh, you know, if if we set this standard, and what about your agencies of one and two people? And you end up with a document that ends up being a compromise for lots of people, and and not where maybe sometimes at the level that you want. You know, one of the biggest arguments is if you set it too high, no one's going to adopt it. And I think about all the the years of Swigfast and all the documents that we put out, and how few agencies actually adopted the literal document. Now, there are a few agencies out there that would, that would adopt the entire sure. document and, and make changes to their policy and procedure to adopt them. But what I, what I have noticed over the years is that when SwigFast documents would come out, people would read them, and if they didn't like something in it, they just didn't adopt it. And if they liked something in it or they were already doing it, then they didn't make any changes. So what I found is very few agencies actually made changes and went, okay, we're going to start doing this thing now. We don't really want to, but we're going to because that's the standard. I just – I don't find a lot of agencies actually do that. They they use so much of a piecemeal, and the thing that would frustrate me is when there was a Daubert hearing 
it was the first thing they'd bring up. Look at our, our standards. Look at all these standards. There are squeak fast standards. Look at these squeak fast standards. But when there was a trial and they were called out, you know, for not having adopted the document or doing what the document said, the first response would be, well, they're just recommendations. Right. And the thing that the, the phrase that would drive me crazy is, well, it's not required in our agency. It's not required in our agency where the examiner, the tech lead, the supervisor could have made it required, but chose not to. And I just think about the last documents that we issued in 2013, 2012 on documentation, you know, SwigFast complexity graph. Uh, just even the standard terminology for quality and how few agencies adopted those. And if they had something close to it, they went, well, we, what we have is fine. But it wasn't what was written. And so I just think about all the calories burnt and all the hours spent writing these documents when if someone doesn't want to adopt it, there is no way to make them adopt it. There is no enforcement mechanism and as you know, too, when OSAC was being developed, the plan was to have an enforcement mechanism through accreditation. And I don't know how and when, but at some point, the community was told that's not going to happen. Oh, that was almost immediate. Uh, yeah. I, I'd have to go back and look at our our episodes. Uh, but we interviewed a, a consultant for ANAB. Anya? Anya, yes. And I believe it was in that interview where we asked her about uh, enforcement. And uh, that's, I think that was the first time I, I clearly heard that there was no plan mm. to uh, enforce in the foreseeable future uh, anything coming out of OSAC or ASB through ANAB. Uh, they were you know, much more concerned about what it said, basically what it says in the ISO documents and you know, any of the supplementals that they had written and what it actually says in the agency's policies. So if the agency wrote in basically voluntarily the OSAC uh, doc, then, well, then yeah, they would enforce that, but otherwise no. Right. Yeah. So that's, 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 um, that's one of my resolutions. Um, and I've already, I already talked to two different people in the last month or so about, joining up with this part of a committee or that part of a committee or helping out here or submitting the, and like, nope, I'm not, I'm not doing it. And, sure. and I didn't give them a really good reason why I just said, this is a resolution I've made in 2022 to be less, you know, and, but that is actually my reason uh, is I, I just, it, it's so frustrating that there isn't an enforcement mechanism I, I just, I, th like I said, my experience is agencies aren't going to adopt these things if they don't want to. And if they don't like something in it, well, then they just leave that part out of it and they don't really make any real changes based on the document. Now, maybe I'm being unfair and painting with a very broad brush, but I think about my own agency, X agency, I think about other agency policies and so many SOPs I read. I don't know what your experience is, but. Do you find the same thing? It's kind of pick and choose. And yep. well, if, if the hurdle is too high, we're definitely not going to make any changes to adopt this thing in a standard. I, I would say it's kind of two parts. So first, yes, that the only unwanted changes that I saw implemented at my old agency came from AskCloud Lab, uh, came from mm -hmm. accreditation and the assessors saying you must do this. Because there's an enforcement mechanism. Because there was an enforcement mechanism. Now, that's not to say that change didn't occur. There was other changes that occur that were not mandated to us. And, uh, but, so A, you're right in that if, if, unless it, if it wasn't mandated, and, but it still appeared in an OSAC or a SWIGFAST document, then it was, oh, yeah, we're doing that, or now nah, we're not going to do that. Um, but, it wasn't really like when a new document came out, it's not like a whole lot of changes were made because that document came out right, right away. However, I did see that over time, uh, like with documentation, that changes were slowly made over time to begin mm -hmm. to add in the documentation. 
typically but is that because that was pressure coming from defense attorneys and from the courts and decisions really oh okay all right honestly what it came what it at least my impression of how it came about was that uh certain people decided to begin doing it right Uh as a as an option of well i am just doing this now and so a b you know i have the tools to do it so um I'm going to, and then slowly over time, a few more people doing it, uh, and then a kind of warning, hey, we should all probably do this eventually, try it out, and then we're going to have to do this soon, and then we're going to have to do this next year, and then, all right, everybody has to do this. Um, and so I would say that the the policies helped in that progression, but it wasn't really the the immediate change that that a mandate uh, would would occur. So I, I definitely see where you're coming from, um, but uh, I, I do think that the policy that you know had that as a as a requirement or a standard or even as a best practice, you know, did encourage that change. Uh, it just occurred slowly and required all these other things to line up too. Yeah, and let me let me just emphasize that I'm not saying that we shouldn't have those bodies. Sure, um, I'm just saying I don't want to be on them <laughs> at the moment. And what I'm what I'm telling people, and here's what the listeners look. If there's any listeners out there that want to get involved, um, when I get these emails, I'll throw your name out, and especially if I know you or know of your work or your agency, and can make a recommendation. So what I keep telling the people asking me is. Now, there's plenty of other people out there who want to try this and get involved. It doesn't have to be me. It doesn't have to be some of us older guard now, you know, who have been through this before. I'm going to – in fact, the other half of this commitment is I'm, I'm going to focus on the next couple of years on publishing, getting some of this research, some of our validation studies out there. I've been building up all these data over the last couple of years, and I have several projects that need to get published. And I'd rather sure. focus on that at the moment. Um, so I, I totally agree, Eric. We we need people to write these standards. They need to be out there. They will, if nothing else, set a metric for where we should be. I'm just personally frustrated that there isn't an enforcement mechanism, and we end up in the end with compromised documents that really aren't the standard we wanted to write in the first place in order to appease everybody. But in the end, <laughs> it, it it doesn't really – um, motivate anyone to adopt them, and and the people you're appeasing aren't going to adopt it anyway. So yes, so and so you have just uh, you just triggered the next thing I wanted to mention was our you know in our last episode we yes. um, did this talk we talked about the ASB document and the uh, conclusions and the changes that happened in that document, particularly moving you know they they proposed a five point scale. But instead of using support for same source or support for different source language, they proposed inconclusive with similarities and dissimilarities. In our last episode, we we talked about that. And we we told listeners, hey, uh, there is a a period here where you can send in comments to them. Uh, that period is now since closed. I I certainly did make comments. Did you? Did you end up making yep. comments? It, it yep, was on the great. last day, but I, I got them in. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Yeah, me too. Uh, and I, I sent them a letter and I got a – and the letter was basically uh, – here's a little bit of background, something to think about. And I got a, a quick response from the ASB basically saying, hey, we don't really do letters. They have to be in a spreadsheet you know, as comments. And I'm like, yeah, these aren't comments. I don't want you to comment on these and I don't need a public comment. This is something I want you to think about and give it to the people who are writing this document uh, this is coming from someone who's already using this approach and other people who already know this approach and know this information on a theoretical level who have written about it, people that, that know how to use this and have been using it in the courtroom and have experience with it. Uh, there's, there are a few things they should be thinking about. And one of the comments I made in there is I realized after looking at their – in one of the in the last episode, Eric, you said, "Hey, take a look at the red line version and the changes." 
And I, one of the things I did is well, I looked at all the comments and which comments they considered and why they made some of their changes to try to get some insight there. And one of the things was it looked like a compromise document. Uh, you know, they, they took the bold step of doing a five-point scale, which they had many comments that didn't want the five-point scale, just wanted the three-point scale. And they took that bold step of doing the five-point. And my point to them, one of the points in the letter is, if you're going to make the, the bold choice of doing the five-point scale, then you have to do it correctly. And you have, if you're going to support a likelihood ratio approach with likelihood ratio language, then it needs – that, that was the important choice, and you've already made that choice. Now don't do that part of it incorrectly and incoherently to the likelihood ratio approach, but rather use the language that's already there, already established – like we talked about in the last episode. And I, the point I made was the people that don't want to use this approach are not going to be any more convinced by whatever language you end up choosing. If they don't want to use a five-point approach, they're not going to use a five-point approach, and there is no enforcement mechanism to say otherwise, which ties back into my frustration that you make these documents, you change things, this document changed as we, you know, explored them in the last episode for the worse. And why why is that? To try to appease a group of people who are never going to adopt it in the first place. And that's the part I'm like, all right, I I'm a little frustrated on that on that end of it, but that's where I'm coming from. So that's what I kind of relayed to them. Stop stop catering to the people who are never going to adopt this in the first place. To play devil's advocate just briefly, I, I think there is an in-between group. Uh, that that use the ex, a more expanded scale and something in between inconclusive and identification that have been for a few years now using that terminology inconclusive with similarities, uh, right? So yeah, it's fair. So uh, you know this this kind of what they've written up would definitely fit work well with that group because uh, that's what, <laughs> what they're already saying. But you're right in that the the people that are just going to stick to three conclusions. Well, who cares what they say about the the other two? Because they're not going to use them anyway, right? But uh, you know, based on the last doc from Swigfast and the inconclusive language that that was there, boy, that was almost ten years ago now. <laughs> I'm tr I'm uh, struggling to remember exactly how that was phrased. Um, some some variation of inconclusive, and then yeah, yeah, and then also just. I mean, presentation that I made with that language and, um, and many other agencies you know, using that phrasing, it, it's definitely gotten around and, and become, you know, relatively common for the agencies, you know, expanding out beyond, but beyond the three that, and the could not exclude the kind of DNA version, uh, language of that, mm -hmm. which I still don't understand why, why DNA hasn't thought about that why are you saying what the decision what the conclusion isn't it doesn't make any sense <laughs> but that's a whole nother you know, ball of wax oh i i i'm i'm with you 100 percent on that i i tried to make the logical argument that if you have a five-point scale of identification right let's say inconclusive with features and agreement inconclusive inconclusive with features and disagreement and exclusion if you say cannot exclude then you still have 80% of the scale available, including features in disagreement, but not enough to exclude. In other words, cannot exclude does not say anything about the support right. that's incompatible with that. If you're saying there are, or, you know, if it's not on that side at all, that there's simply no support for different sources, that's a, that's a different conclusion than cannot exclude. And logically, you're only taking one of the conclusions off the table and still leaving four other potential conclusions that it could be. And I think we can be more precise than that in our conclusions. Yeah, I, I'm with you. Cannot exclude. Do you imagine going into court and just simply saying, I can't ID? So could that be an exclusion? Well, it could be, but I just can't, I can't ID him. But it could be an exclusion. But I don't know. I just can't ID. But to be fair, that's exactly what we did for like fifty years. So, oh yeah, yeah, no, no identification effective. <laughs> no identification that's, a, that's, effective. that's all that is. Uh, no, that's that's a that's an interesting resolution, and I completely understand 
uh, where you're at there. And, you know, without any kind of progress towards an enforcement mechanism, you know, I can see, you know, other people, you know, cycle through, you know, do some work on these types of committees and, and also get burnt out with, you know, what's the point for now? I, well, partially cause I, I, I have to finish writing uh, the one that I'm working on right now, my assignment right now in the group, but um, you know, for now <laughs> I'm, I'm still in it and in it to win it. Yeah. I think I got, I have to be there when when a doc finally comes back from ASB and we you know decide OSAC then decides up or down does it go onto the registry or not um, to just to finally see something come full circle through the entire process. Will you vote yay just to get something on the registry? <laughs> oh no 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 not not just to get on the registry. And and I hope no one else on OSAC does that too. I hope it, the the yeas are because you know someone truly feels that it's appropriate to put on the registry. Sure. Okay. Um, but even still, that's still a that's still a a cycle. It has still come full circle. Yeah. Even though it didn't make it across the finish line, it made it into the I don't know what the analogy is, but it uh, <laughs> it went through the whole process. So, uh, any emails here you want to talk about? Yeah, I've, I've got one uh, from a listener who we've talked about and interviewed in the past, Lisa Steele. She wrote us after the one of the episodes where we were talking about the ASB document and the, the language. And it just if listeners aren't aware, she's a defense attorney. She is an appellate defense attorney. So she does appellate reviews after a case has gone to trial and been decided. She reviews these cases and makes appellate arguments. So uh, her her view was, I don't hate the inconclusive but similarities or inconclusive but dissimilarities language, but it makes it crystal clear that this information is not an identification. I've watched prosecutors drive trucks through consistent with and similar language implying strongly that the examiner thinks the defendant is she says the guy, but I would put source there. The defendant is the source, but isn't allowed to plainly say that. I can see some issues with strong association or even weak association or moderate association without reminding the listener that it isn't good enough to make the ID. So what I take from this is, as a defense attorney, has some concerns about how jurors might interpret this language and I get the sense, maybe you do too, Eric, that she, uh, she thinks that the inconclusive language is probably safer language, less confusion. Is that is that your takeaway with that? Yeah, I, I I would agree with that. I think that from that having that defense attorney perspective is you know is really an influence on that opinion. So back at my old agency, every year or two, we would do uh, classes for attorneys through mm-hmm. uh, this project called the Arizona Forensic Science Academy. And it was a great opportunity to present to attorneys, both prosecutors and defense attorneys, about different forensic topics. When I would bring up this, again, at the time, and the conclusion that we had at the agency at the time, inconclusive with similarities, I would also mention other phrasing, uh, the one that uh, Alice published when she was working at, uh, at Vegas, the could not exclude, a swigfast version of the language and would ask the group kind of which version of this do you guys prefer? And if I remember correctly, the defense attorneys, you know, did latch on to that inconclusive with similarities as, as the one that they preferred. I think part of the reason for that is to link it and latch it really closely with inconclusive, right? To have it be a version of inconclusive. And the whole idea here with five conclusion scales to have five conclusions, not, you know, ID exclusion and a few different versions of inconclusive. That's still really three. It, it needs to be a separate and distinct conclusion separate from inconclusive to, to have its kind of true place. It, it can't be too close. It can't be called an almost ID. That's, that's, that's linking it too much with an ID. It can't be called inconclusive. It's got to be its own thing. I think that the OSAC language is, at least for, as far as what I've seen, the closest that we've gotten to that yet. But um, yeah. but again, I, 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 I read that through that and I was like, you know what? I'm not actually surprised based on a similar conversations I've had with other defense attorneys. 
Well, and again, I can only speak of my experience here is when I've had a chance to present in the courtroom and I show the graph and you can see the relative relationships to everything and say, here's an ID, here's an inconclusive in the middle, here's where this fell to give some relative magnitude that helps bring it into focus for examiner or sorry, for people hearing this and without, you know, without testing jurors or polling them, I can't say that, you know, I, I have no way of knowing if they truly understood what I was saying, but when I have talked to lay people afterwards, like attorneys and other people that have viewed the graphic, they've said, yeah, I, I get it. The graphic helps digest this. Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, it was just, uh, we thought we'd share that, and, uh, you know, again, we, we recognize there are different views on this. Uh, totally. To me... It's about trying to capture the strength of the association or non-association. I, I, I like that the Army Crime Lab adopted association at some point, that kind of language. And to me, it's trying to describe the strength of the association or non-association. All right. Well, this is turning kind of into a grab bag kind of episode, uh, kind of like what we used to do back in the day um, when we had a bunch of little topics. But uh uh, so another little topic I want to to ask the group, and this kind of relates to you know, the email that uh, that we got in from Lisa, and, and thank you for that email. Uh, but I, I'd actually like to ask you know other listeners to send in some email responses uh, to to this call, uh, and that's uh, it's this is completely now separate from <laughs> from conclusions and even comparisons, getting into the uh, the image capture. Uh, portion of latent prints and that's uh talking about transmitted light and uh, i'm really interested in seeing what kind of transmitted light setups do agencies have out there i think the the simplest form of of a transmitted light setup is a, is a light table and uh glad i know you're definitely familiar with uh with the light tables with the, all those clear lifts in minnesota uh it seems well, that's like that's it that'd yeah. be a a uh, a key piece of equipment to to be able to to see the uh, to see the latents on the cards. You know, we had back in Arizona, um, we you know regular white cards and black uh, powder, so we we didn't need a light table for those. But we had a transmitted light setup, especially for photographing plastic bags, either initially with just visible you know latent prints that you could see under the right lighting uh, setup. Or especially after superglue fuming, before uh, applying a dye stain, and this uh, the setup we had was real simple. It was just basically a a cube made out of PVC pipes and a, a glass plate uh, on top, about twelve inches square. Looks like the whole thing was purchased from you know in pieces from Home Depot 30, 40 years ago. And then underneath that, either a light table or sometimes a uh, flashlight shining up through it. But the key thing is that in the in the center, directly underneath the object in the um, in the frame of the camera, was like a piece of black paper. So you had your light table or other kind of light source. And you had this black paper, and then the piece of glass, your item, sometimes sandwiched in between two pieces of glass, and then the camera, all stacked up there, in that order. And it was a really effective way to light up the uh, the super glue but while still having a darker uh, background to provide that contrast. And as I'm kind of thinking about it, it, I don't really recall seeing this kind of setup a whole lot at different agencies. So I'm just got me curious over the past week or so wondering what kind of setups people have to, to use transmitted light, especially in photographing clear objects like uh, plastic bags. So, mm -hmm. um, if anyone you know has a, a setup that's similar to what I just described or somewhat different than that, uh, if you guys could you know, write in, describe that, even send in pictures if you're allowed to. Again, it's what I, I was trained on. It's the only thing I ever knew, so I assumed it was pretty common. And now that I'm thinking about it, and as I've visited different labs, I don't really recall seeing this kind of thing set up very often. Yeah, I mean, what you described, I mean, is, is definitely not what we did. And you put your finger right on it. I mean, we used light boxes because we predominantly used clear lips. And we used both gray powder, black powder, and the mix. To, there is that 
that black and gray mix depending on the lighting. We would you know use basically all three or various scenes depending on the surfaces and substrate. And so when you throw it on a clear lift, uh, you either want to backlight it for the for usually for the darker powder, and for the lighter powder it could work, uh, but a lot of times you'd end up putting. Um, just a reflectant black back behind it, and then not do transmitted light, but you know reflected light from above. Uh, so I mean, those were standard ways of photographing a lift. Uh, you know, uh, if we wanted to photograph from a lift as opposed to a scanner. Right. And when we were doing drug bags, as you described, we used embroidery circles. I don't know if you're familiar with what yeah. that is. It's I come from a line of seamstresses, so uh, ah, okay. yes, I'm, yeah, I'm okay. very familiar with it. All right. So that's what we use similar to your PVC setup and the, the like two sheets of glass. We would put the plastic bag in the embroidery circle. If the listener doesn't know what it is, it's basically two tightly concentric circles of cardboard with a little thumb nut screw that when you put, when you put the, um, the hoop – under the plastic and then put the second hoop inside the first hoop and then tightened it, it would uh, take out any slack in the plastic bag. So it would give you a nice little circle area uh, that you would photograph with usually oblique lighting or lighting from above, not below as you're describing, although sometimes we could try it with a light box. But for the most part, with super glue, we're putting the black backing under and using reflected, not transmitted light. But that was our approach to what you described. So, yeah, transmitted light for plastic bags and that kind of approach, as you described, I haven't seen many setups like that. So, you know, sometimes you get in a lift on one of those clear cards and you could only, it was sometimes really hard to see. But if you held it up and you looked through it at one of the fluorescent lights on the ceiling, but not directly at it, you had to like have it a little bit off just past. So like the, the, the fluorescent light was not directly behind the latent, but a little bit off to the side. Then at that kind of border zone, you could start to see the latent. Do you remember situations mm-hmm. like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, for sure. Well, we did a lot of photography, and, and if you rely solely on a scanner, you yeah. might miss something in, in a scan. I mean, photography is, a, is really – it cannot be overlooked at how important that is. So this kind of table really allowed for that where by moving around the, the black background, shrinking it or making it, getting it bigger, you could yeah. kind of really control – not just having okay, just here. There's black now, and then there's still light shining up. But, but having that black backing at kind of the edge of the print, so that yeah. the light's kind of wrapping around it a little bit, and just kind of hitting just that sweet spot to get it to really uh, to pop and have good contrast. Yeah, agreed. It's um, it's one of those things that really shouldn't be overlooked different lighting techniques. I, I know we spent so many weeks and weeks with old FBI examiners who, you know, were trained at the FBI who really knew all the little tricks of standard photography. They weren't very familiar with digital photography, but, you know, the, a lot of the basic principles are the same. Sure. But still the, the, that concept of getting the perfect shot, I, I will admit that I don't have the patience for it. <laughs> if, if I spend more than 10 minutes trying to photograph something, I will, I, I, I start getting really frustrated. But I, I watched an examiner, old school examiner, spend probably five or six hours a, a whole day just trying to get one good photograph of a latent print. And I, I admire that. And you need that person in your laboratory who will just chase that print with the exact right lighting conditions to get yep. that photograph. I love those people. That ain't me. Yeah, I, I had kind of a table off to the side, my just kind of array of light sources where you know, typically just the light box would be fine. Or sometimes I'd switch it out for a flashlight, um, just a regular old flashlight. And, and you know, you could twist the top of that. So there's a little bit of difference you could do with that. But I'd also have some like old light sources from microscopes. Um, mm-hmm, we're mm-hmm. on those little like, um, you know, adjustable arm kind of lights. Fiber optic. There you go. And but it also had this old like '70s desk lamp with a fluorescent tube in it because sometimes it was like it had to be fluorescent light 
to get to to see the latent. You couldn't see it any other way. So I would just kind of turn this massive desk lamp upside down and shove the fluorescent, you know, the top part in underneath this whole setup and and you know get it that way. Uh, it just you know there was the what normally worked versus what you had to have on hand for those uh, special cases. So anyway, like I said, yes. send in those those uh, those pictures or just descriptions. And I'm really curious to to kind of hear more about uh, how different agencies use transmitted light, uh, especially on um, you know clear plastic plastic bags, plastic wrap, that kind of stuff. Yeah, we should also make sure that gets out in a fig newsletter and a poll. Ooh, good call. Well, Glenn, uh, let's move into our quote-unquote main topic of the episode now that we're 40 <laughs> minutes in. Um, uh, so, like I said, it's probably going to be more of a, a grab bag uh, this week. Uh, we also knew that we didn't have a whole lot to go into on, on this uh, this topic. But uh, I got an email in a few weeks ago, an examiner who asked about qualitative statements used for identifications. So they had recently gone through an ANAB audit, and one of the findings was, you know, what type of qualitative statements do you have for identification? So they they put something in, it didn't get approved, and then they eventually you know, made some more changes, and then, you know, ANAB said, all right, that's good enough, and everything was fine. So the, the question he had uh, for me was, you know, what, what qualitative statements has, you know, agencies where you've worked used in the past to kind of get some ideas of what they should put into their reports. I started kind of, you know, checking with friends of the podcast uh, kind of group and you, that kind of evolved into a larger discussion of, Hey, let's just go ahead and you know discuss it here uh, on the podcast. Uh, So Glenn, why don't we start with the, the ANAB document uh, and what, what exactly it says, you know, what, what does the requirement say for, you know, for this topic and, uh, and which document is it in? Yep. Great. And Eric, this is actually a question that I get probably every three or four months. Okay. And at some point, like you said, when you reached out to the friends of the podcast, little text group that we have, I remember when you asked the question, like, what the hell is Eric talking about? I'm sure we've talked about this in previous podcasts. This has been going on for years. I get these questions all the time and you're like, no, we, uh, we actually haven't discussed it. And so we both agreed that, yeah, this is a good thing to discuss with the community because, well, these changes were made, and I'm going to say a couple of years ago, but you can, you're going to be able to correct me in a moment, (laughs) that from the 2017 document, so you asked the the title of document, so it's the AR3125, that's AR3125 ISO 17025-2017. Requirements and so, uh, just again, in, in, if you're a listener, you don't really quite know accreditation. You're interested in accreditation. You have the ISO requirements that are general, and there's the standard 17025. Although there is also 17020 that a lot of labs will use. 17025 is the most common, and that's for any kind of testing laboratory. But you have companies like ANAB or A2LA who provide certificates of accreditation if you meet these standards, do the inspections and audits. But they also have, in addition to the ISO requirements, they have their own forensic supplemental requirements. In other words, these are additional requirements specific to forensic laboratories. So for forensic laboratories, because this wouldn't apply to a water testing laboratory or to a biomedical laboratory, you don't have opinions or identifications or fingerprints or DNA profiles, but this is specific to a forensic lab. So in the AR3125, it is section 7.8 under reporting of results, 7.8.1.2.2. There shall be a procedure for reporting of results that, and then there's a whole bunch of sub-requirements, and under B, it says requires qualifying the significance of associations in the report, whether by a statistic or a qualitative statement. You must qualify the significance of your associations. That's that's the take-home message. So if you say it's an identification, what does that actually mean? How strong of an association is that? And we, as fingerprint examiners, all know, well, obviously, duh, it's the strongest association possible. 
the reader doesn't know that. And if you use a term like from another, you know, like footwear, for example, has been using a whole bunch of different levels of association for a long time. They have, for example, high degree of association. And if you're not a footwear examiner, you don't know if that's the highest degree of association, a moderate degree of association, or the or a lower degree of association. If you read and go, a high degree of association, well, that sounds pretty good. Well, actually, that's they're inconclusive with similarities, but not enough to identify. They have their highest level of association is, in fact, identification. And if you aren't a footwear examiner and you don't know what the, the levels are, this is, again, why those graphs, those charts, those graphics of what your conclusions are matter because it shows this is asking for you to put in your report what are your possible conclusions and where does this fall in the level of significance again we all get an id is the strongest association we can make but a layperson may not know that for all they know is there is a, a match Maybe a match is the highest because that's what flashes on the screen in CSI. <laughs> and then identification is that's an association, but it's not as certain as a match. So you, you wouldn't know that if you're a layperson. So the this requirement requires laboratories to actually say, not just in their SOPs, but in their reports, this is what this term means, and here's how strong of an association this term is. And if you can't do it with a statistic, then you've got to do it qualitatively using qualitative modifiers like weak, moderate, strong, extremely strong, those kinds of modifiers. You have to in some way qualitatively describe the strength of this without a statistical number if one's not available. Now, the the thing that you had alluded to was that you know, this document that you're citing was published in 2017. And before the show, we were kind of looking up – what document are we going to cite in making in having this discussion? And uh, so I started poking around online and, and found reference to to an older doc, the ASCLAD Lab International Supplemental Requirements for the Accreditation of Forensic Science Testing Laboratories. And that corresponded to the, again, came out in 2011 or called the 2011 edition and corresponds to the ISO 17.025 2005 version of the 17025. And so it's it's been around for, you know, for a number of years now, and the requirement there is when associations are made, the significance of the association shall be communicated clearly and qualified properly in the report. Yeah, when when you pointed it out to me before this episode, I was I was very surprised by that. I in fact I remember this being a thing in 2017. Right. And so I was adamant before we started the show. Now, 2017 is when this started. And what I, my personal best guess here is it started being enforced to fingerprint examiners in 2017. For whatever reason, Eric, you've been through these assessments. These things are out there. No one picks up on it. No one has a finding. Then suddenly someone has a finding and then it sort of, sort of spreads to other assessors and then becomes a thing going forward and i suspect somehow from 2011 to 2017 that flew under the radar and assessors looked at it and went well it doesn't really apply to us that you know, fingerprint people that's a that's a footwear thing or that's a handwriting thing that's not a fingerprint thing and at some point someone went, oh no this applies to everybody so where is your qualitative statement in your report which we obviously didn't have prior to 2017 you know, again, it's slightly different language, but I think the the difference that seems to have really kicked, you know, into this kind of line into people's awareness is in 2011, it was described as communicated clearly and qualified properly, right? Right. So there's no mention of a qualitative statement. Right. Or a statistic. Or a statistic, right? It just qualifying the statement. So having now saying, all right, qualify the significance by doing this, having a statistic or some sort of qualitative statement, which then, and again, is kicked off in our little text chain, what's a qualitative statement? So Google does not provide a clear answer for that. I mean, qualitative statement is when you take a survey and it says good, bad, worse. It says, I, I agree, I strongly agree, or I very, 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 very strongly agree. Those are qualitative statements. When you don't have a number, you attempt to capture the magnitude of something with words. That's a qualitative statement. Is the importance here describing it with words or 
Yes. Describing it in words, but also putting it in place in the with the other options. That <laughs> great point. That is not what this says, though. It doesn't say that you need to say what the other conclusions are. You need to make it clear what this one is. And in my, I mean, in my opinion, I don't know how you do it without knowing. If you say I strongly agree and not know what the other options are in a survey, well, how do you know if that's the strongest agreement that's even possible? I, I completely agree with you. This doesn't sure. say you need to actually put the whole scale in the report. I think you do if you want the reader to understand it, but it doesn't say that. It simply means you need to state an identification well, that is basically the strongest association possible. But it doesn't say you then must follow it up with what the other potential associations are. Okay. But, but at least saying that this one is the strongest. Mm-hmm. 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 That's the qualitative aspect. This is the strongest association possible. And then or an exclusion what, is the strongest non-association. So, again, this is for, for – this is significance of association. So what would – what would you recommend as the qualitative statement for a support for same source uh, conclusion, <laughs> which is also again, well, an association? Giving credit to OSAC's foresight, when they wrote that document and the levels of association, the strength of support, they had this, this document, this requirement in mind, which is why that definition of source identification starts with this is the strongest level of association. When it gets to support for same source, it's why you're required to express the strength of the support. Mm. You can't just report support for same source. You have to actually express it as limited, moderate, or strong. You have to do that because of exactly this requirement. That's why that's there. I've actually run into this with some people trying to adopt the – uh, OSAC support scale, and they just wanted to say, well, why do we have to say anything other than support for same source? Can't we just go with that? Like, no, that actually doesn't meet this requirement. You have to describe the strength of that support. So technically, Eric, to your question, there could be three or two or one level of strength of support for a support for same source, depending on the agency, what they've adopted. Sure. Okay. So, Eric, when we discuss this with our podcast group, our little text group, one of the things that we heard from them, and this is something I've actually seen in documents as well, so I know this is going on, so this is a reason why I want to talk about this, is we heard that one of the ways that agencies were meeting this requirement is by putting the definition of identification in their reports. And one of our, our friends said, well, yeah, we have our definition of identification in the report. Their definition of identification is the following. Identification is the decision by an examiner that there are sufficient features in agreement to conclude the two areas of friction ridge impressions originated from the same source. So based on what we talked about, what do you think, Eric? Does that meet the requirement or not? Well, no. From what kind of we discussed a qualitative uh, statement is that it doesn't sound like it meets that definition. I would 100% agree with you. I don't think it at all meets that definition. It is the SWIGFAST definition. But again, this is why the SWIGFAST definition is different from the OSAC definition of identification. It doesn't have a qualitative statement in there. Yeah, so I, I find it frustrating that the assessors don't actually even understand what this really means. They're trying to enforce it, but they don't they don't necessarily understand what an appropriate qualitative statement is. So, I, yeah. Um, I, but I know that it's a workaround. Agencies just will put their definition in there. But if the definition lacks a qualitative statement about the strength of the association, then it doesn't meet the requirement. It's that simple. Yeah. And I think Carrie also mentioned that a lot of agencies are going to the the ULTRs, the uh -uh. From the DOJ, uh, yep. the universal language of something, something. Boy, brain not working tonight. Uh, you're putting in that kind of language to satisfy the requirements. Universal language of testimony and reporting? That sounds right. U uniform language for there testimony and reports. So, but yeah, I, I think that's your, your observation there about 
there's I think there's definitely some some uncertainty by agencies exactly what does it mean to put in a qualitative statement and right. to some degree from assessors in in how to enforce that. It but it does sound seem like the OSAC doc made sure to put that that qualitative statement first and foremost right up in that front. definition right yep. at the top so that uh, agencies adopting that definition and just putting in the definition of ID into their reports, you know, that way they get covered. Yeah. Uh, to be fair, ASB did the same thing. When True. When I looked through the comments that came in, people were saying, why can't we just say inconclusive with similarities? Uh, why do we have to signal the strength of support under that? And that their response to the people when they commented was, no, we have to have a qualitative statement of strength of support under this category of inconclusive with features and agreements. So they recognized the same thing and, frankly, did due diligence in making sure that all of that was covered there as well. That's true. That's still that uh, the, that language, that strong, moderate, and They weak, went with weak. Weak. That, that language is still in there uh, for the inconclusive with similarities. So Be Because of this requirement. Right, right. Okay. Well, uh, I hope that 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 helped. I, I'm not sure if we have anything else to add in on this, Glenn. I, and when you said, you know, haven't talked about it, you know, there's been a couple of you know, times here recently where we, we've both been asked each other, have we talked about this? And then had to go back <laughs> right. to the archive and, hey, look at that. We did <laughs> to this right. entire interview or discuss this entire topic. But you know, so I'm, I'm sure that one of these days we're going to to completely repeat ourselves, uh, and then someone will have a, a fun time being able to, you know, show our inconsistencies. But you know, if and when that happens, uh, I'll just insist that it's it's scientific evolution, right? As as we've known more, we've evolved in uh, you know our, our opinions to to uh, uh, to reflect the new knowledge that we've gained in the meantime. Yeah, I, I I'm with you 100% there that uh, we're we probably have repeated ourselves in the past not realizing it but you know, we don't I don't expect that every listener that picks up this podcast is going to know the first couple hundred episodes anyway. So a little repetition <laughs> right. isn't, isn't exactly bad. Exactly. Right. But I mean, the short answer to the this long form question, because again, I, I get this email all the time. I always just tell the person emailing me what's a qualitative statement. The simple answer is go get the OSAC document and adopt at a minimum the first sentence. If I were you, I would adopt the entire statement for identification, including the extremely strong support and all that, and just put that in every report. At the at at the in a footnote in your report, when you say identification or exclusion or whatever, just have those definitions there. Now, I personally think, given what we talked about earlier, I would put all the definitions as boilerplate language in your report. But at a minimum, if you use ID, then you need to have that definition. If you use exclusion, you need to have that definition, which is something I'm noticing too. People are just putting the definition for identification but not necessarily the qualitative statements for an exclusion. But that needs to be there just as well, which goes back to it's just easier to have you know a one-page report – or sorry, one page at the end of your report with all your definitions right there. Oh, that reminds me. Eric, there is an exception to all of this. And I'm, I'm going to throw it out there, and you please correct me because maybe you know it more than I do. The exception here is as long as the client knows what these things are. In other words, there's this weird exception that if you reach out to, let's say you only have one submitter, you know, right? You work for Phoenix Police Department, so you only have Phoenix Police Department submitting to you and no other agency. As long as, all, as, long as you have an agreement with the end user that they all know what this means and that it's it's clearly communicated to them at some point in general and they sign off and agree with it, then it's okay. It's the weird exception to this. I don't agree with that because to me that's myopic. It assumes that the only person reading the report is the submitter, the cop investigator, when we know that your end users include attorneys, defense attorneys, the defendant him or herself – 
judges, potentially jurors. So I, I'm not a fan of that exception personally. Interesting. Is, is this the, uh, what's it? The simplified reporting, uh, language. Is that where it falls? Yeah, Eric, I think that's exactly right. I think it's under the simplified reporting requirements that you have an agreement with the client that they understand and accept that the simplified reporting doesn't have to have all that stuff in it as long as you have an agreement in place, which is easier to do with single source submitters than it is like your old lab or my lab where you've got potentially 180 different submitters. But again, I go back to even in single submitter agencies, it's not just the cops looking at the report. You have other, in my view, clients that will be reviewing yeah. that report and, and gaining information from it. Yeah, I mean, exactly. You have the, the defense side that's going to be reading these reports and and you're having that that information clearly there in the report itself is really important for that, like you said, customer. Yeah. This is a, that language of 17025, thinking about customers, right? It's all about a paying customer who's paying to have their water sample analyzed and is going back to that customer. Uh, this is the problem with 17025. It's not written for forensic purposes. And there, there are other people to consider beyond the quote-unquote customer. Hell, even the public right, has a right to these documents because they're publicly funded crime labs. So I, I'd argue that there are many more quote-unquote customers beyond what ISO says. True. Yep. All right. Well, uh, let's go ahead and close things out here for the week. Have we have we have we emptied our grab bag of uh, leftover Christmas candies? <laughs> I think we have. Uh, okay. I definitely think we have. And you weren't even sure if we'd make it to an hour. Oh, <laughs> no, no, no. I, I I knew we would, and uh, I, I but I knew we would probably want a few other topics to to throw in. It's funny. The grab bag episodes were pretty common that first year or two. Good to get back to that. So, uh, well, let's close it on out. First off with training. Let's see, the upcoming uh, FIGS newsletter. Uh, keep an eye out for uh, the flyer for an upcoming uh, class on exclusions, uh, latent print exclusions that I'll be teaching. Uh, looks like I have one tentatively scheduled for next uh, September, so it's a little bit later in the year. And I'll be looking to see about getting an another one scheduled either in person or uh, virtual in the the first half of the year uh, but uh, you can see the the flyer coming out in the next uh, figs newsletter uh, beginning of february and glenn uh, i'm sure you have some training here coming up yeah i have a couple of things we have an advanced ace v course uh set in osceola county that's um right around orlando in uh, florida that is february 28th through march 4th then I also have a course with John Black teaching exclusion and sufficiency topics. Uh, that is also in Florida as well. Both of those courses can be accessed through ronsmithandassociates.com. And I talked about this one briefly last time, but we also have the three-day course scheduled in May in Boise, Idaho, and that's May 2nd through May 4th. And again, that course is on testimony issues where we have uh, Brendan Max, a defense attorney, come in and give uh, his insight on to cross-examination and fingerprint topics and challenges. And that can also be accessed at ronsmithandassociates.com. So if you're looking for some training this spring to use up your fiscal year dollars, uh, please uh, look at, at those courses and love to see you there in person. Now, Glenn, did, did you say February 28th through through uh, March 4th in the Orlando area? I did. <laughs> so, weird coincidence, I'm going to be in the Orlando area <laughs> that week. For uh, what? So, uh, uh, FDLE has asked me to come in and, and teach a, uh, a one-day thing just for them because they're, they're bringing all their units together that week. So, I'll just... Coincidentally, be in the area for that and then some other, you know, Idemia business uh, in the Florida area. So we'll have to, uh, you know, since it'll be a, a collection of latent print people in central Florida, see if maybe we'll get a big dinner together or something. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, all right. Well, if you have any... Um, 
comments for us and you know ideas for episodes or to respond to you know, my, my uh, request earlier for you know, examples of uh, transmitted light setups uh, please send us some emails eric at rayforensics.com or glenn at eliteforensicservices.com and if you want to listen to some episodes see all our social media links and go to our double loop podcast store you can go to doublelooppodcast.com remember that the things we say on the show are the opinions of the speaker not necessarily anyone that they might work for and with that we'll close out and talk to you guys next time bye everybody bye everybody have a good week bye.